Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors of this episode. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Pendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt Estonia has many advantages for early state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Kyan Denode, CEO and co-founder of Meetable. Founded in 2018, Meetable is an innovative Dutch food company aiming to deliver at scale the new natural cultivated meat that looks, tastes, and has the nutritional profile of traditional meat. Before funding Meetable, together with Dan Laoning, Klein worked for six years at the management consulting firm McKinsey & Company, where he cultivated expertise in strategy, development, and operations. In this episode, I'm going to talk to Klein about the future of alternative proteins and how he's building Meetable's brand and go-to-market strategy. Welcome, Klein. Thanks, Anita. Thanks for having me. So the first thing I wanted to ask you, and I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, is how do you go from McKinsey consulting to becoming an entrepreneur? Talk to me a little bit about your journey to founding Meetable. Yeah, I have been asked that question quite so many times, but I like telling the story. So thanks for asking. So it actually, in hindsight, it's interesting because then there's so many things that needs, needs to happen. And for me, it's really started already when I was 22. Then I studied economics and philosophy, and I also studied philosophy. And for that, I did an Erasmus, which is a six-month stint that you do somewhere abroad. And I was a little bit late with the application. And then there was only one university in Barcelona that was still open. And I said, okay, I'm going to go there. I did my Spanish lesson, so I was all uh, prepared. But then I arrived there, and then I saw that it was the Catalan University. And I didn't speak Catalan, so I couldn't follow any courses, basically. And then there was one professor from Madrid, and she gave two courses. One was Ethics of Nature, and the other one was Animal Rights. And I was almost forced to follow those courses because she was the only one who gave the courses in Spanish. And there I learned from, for example, Franz de Waal, and you have a couple of other philosophers. And I learned about animals and that they're also sentient beings. And I think from then on, my relationship with eating meat was always a difficult one because animals are not these sort of meat producing machines uh, anymore that maybe we thought that 100, 200 years ago, but that's just not the case. So that was the first dot there. But then I went a completely different route. Uh, I went a little bit into banking. So I spent a year and a half with Barclays Capital, with the investment banking brand. That was not for me. And then I moved to indeed to McKinsey and Company really had a good time. I think I was raised there professionally. That's how I see it. Learned so much, met so many special people. So that was a fantastic time, but I was there six, seven years. And then at some point you get to a big sort of fork in the road and do you go left? Do you go for the partner path? And you do that for the next 10 or 15 years or it's time to say goodbye. And I said goodbye, obviously. And for me, it was then very clear that I was in a privileged position. I had a good 
career. My wife had a good career, so we didn't need to worry about anything financially. And then I said, okay, what if I'm in this privileged position, what should I do? So it was for me also not being an entrepreneur for entrepreneur's sake, but I knew, hey, I want to spend my professional life to something very meaningful. And then I did very McKinsey-like. I did a, a, a global trend analysis. So what are the big trends in the next 10, 20, 30 years? And then you see basically that animal husbandry is in the middle of all of those. So water shortage, climate change. There's obviously the ethical component that's close to my heart. So I said, okay, I really want to get active in this, uh, what has now become the alternative protein sector. So really getting animals out of the food chain, yep. basically. And then I had a lot of conversations. I had a conversation with uh, Impossible Food, Beyond Meat, Memphis in, in the US. But then I also met Dan, Dan Leuning, my co-founder. And again, there's a lot of serendipity there because we were introduced through a mutual connection, a McKinsey connection. And Dan had just given a presentation to the board of the company that he worked for. And I got introduced and he was at the point where he, he worked on the first cultivated meat hamburger. So already in 2013. So he has been thinking about the whole space for eight or nine years. And he just had signed a letter of intent with our third co-founder, Mark Cotter, who is the, the principal inventor, a Cambridge-based scientist principal inventor of our core technology. And Dan had his research plan. He had the letter of intent to use the technology. And he said, but I don't have a clue how to build, how to build a company, how to build a business plan, think about a culture, talk to investors, all those type of things. Uh, and then I said, hey, this is the, the perfect match. And it just felt good from the get-go. So then I think early 2018, we, we decided to, to team up. Yeah. From a roles perspective, like you said, it seems like a match made in heaven, right? With Dan's background and Dr. Mark Coter's background and yourself. It's a really nice compliment. And you obviously are bringing the business and operations expertise from your McKinsey background. But I also was working as a consultant once upon a time. And I always feel like people who become and stay as consultants for a long time, are very different from people who are in a company. And I'm curious to hear what was your transition like from consulting to entrepreneurship? What was easy or and what was most challenging? What did you have to unlearn or relearn again? Yeah, and I would say that the transition is absolutely not finished yet. Eh? It's continuously ongoing. I think the positive thing is a lot of about entrepreneurship, especially in the beginning, is coming up with ideas, planning, execution. I think that's something that comes very natural. But on the other hand, there's a lot of things. Somebody once said to me, it's the first time you now really have to eat the food that you cook. And that that, that, that was a big realization because before this, it was six or eight yeah. weeks. You have a nice PowerPoint documentation where all the theoretical answers are there, the org exactly. chart, how it should look, all that stuff. And then you leave. Yeah. And now that was the beginning. <laughs> that was the easy part. So I think that's very cliche, but the thinking and, and coming up with the plan that that's the easy part. And I think it's super true. And what I, for me, has been a learning and I think is, is still a learning is, so I have very short timelines. Like I said, a, 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 in my McKinsey time was six to 12 weeks. But most of the people that I now work with have PhDs where they focus for five years on a super small topic uh, and, and really get to the bottom of that. So how do we marry those two because at some point you're also wired in a certain way so for me a week is a very long time and you can do a lot in a week but for biologists sometimes in experiments uh, one experiment takes four weeks and then on day 27 something goes wrong and they can start <laughs> all over again so they're finding each other there and and how do you on the one hand keep the pace which i think is something very positive but on the other hand also give 
time for innovation and give time to to think. So I think that's definitely something that I had to uh, get used to. And like I said, that's still still ongoing. Yeah, so I think that's a couple of observations on what, uh, what I've learned in the past couple of years. Actually, I think that's a, a really interesting point that you bring. And I'm wondering, maybe we could go a little deeper in terms of when you're sitting together and you're thinking about trade-offs, what to do and what not to do. It's such a complicated situation because there's the business element, there's a market element, there's also the science element, each of you one, one part of it. How Do you have any advice for other entrepreneurs in terms of how to be good at decision-making, conflict resolutions, moving forward when you have, in, as in every startup, people with very different views and experiences coming together and you have to make these decisions with not all information at your fingertips. Yeah, I think you give a couple of these, of the nuggets already. And a lot, I think, is in acknowledging. So acknowledging, hey, we have a very different view of the world, right? Just sort of acknowledging that and just putting that on the table. Also saying, hey, we're not going to have all the information that we would like to have to make this decision. I think just acknowledging a couple of those things already already helps a great deal. And then I think what I try to do, and, and we'll have to see if the team agrees if, if I do it, eh? I don't interfere with their expertise, but they do need to be able to explain to me the business implications of what they are doing for example, in the lab or in the engineering booth or, or wherever. So I think that's that's a big one. If they can explain to me what the business implications are of what we're doing, then I, as much as possible, and again, uh, that, that's my view. Let's see if the team also agrees, but I'm going to have them in the driver's seat to, to make the decisions. But is there always a business impact that's easily articulated when you're thinking science and that too science, which is unknown? Yeah, no, that, that's fair enough. But in the end, there's always a risk-reward discussion that I think you can have. For example, we, we started out our first as a beef company. And then we had two trajectories, a beef trajectory and a pork trajectory. And we wanted to start with beef, but we soon, hey, this pork product actually is making a lot more, more progress. But there were still a lot of uncertainties. And then we had a lot of discussion, sort of what, and, and we actually put it on a whiteboard. What is the point where we actually can let go of one of the two initiatives? Mm. And I think just talking through it in that way mm. and seeing, hey, when, what needs to be in place for us to feel comfortable with going one or the other route? So I think a lot of it is making that explicit and also not trying to do each other's job. I think that's a big one. And I think then a lot of the frustration comes in. Yeah. That's really good advice. Okay. Let's talk about meatable and alternative proteins. Break it down for me. I mean, there's the plant-based meats, there's impossible, there's beyond. Tell me a little bit about how the alternative market landscape is and where meatable fits in. Yeah. And maybe if you might, I'm going to start with also a little bit of the why, because I think that's, yeah. I think that's absolutely, that's important. And there's a lot of statistics, but there's always one that I really like, or I don't like it, but it's very telling. We have about 8 million, 8 billion people on this planet. And every year, that group of people eats 80 billion land animals for every human on earth, on average, we eat 10 animals which per year, not in a lifetime, but per, per year. And then we don't even take into account all the life that, that uh, lives in the seas. And for me, 
that makes it so clear. And obviously, that's not sustainable. We're talking about overpopulation on that that there were with too many people. But if we need ten animals per human on Earth to to feed us every year, it, it's clear that it's a problem. And then you understand, okay, yeah, obviously, then there's a uh, water issue, then there's a land issue, then there's a, um, a greenhouse gas emission issue. So that's the why. And like I said, when I thought after McKinsey, what's going to be not my next step? I saw that trend and was okay. We need to do something here. And Funnily enough, when I started this journey 2018, energy was still the bad guy, right? The shells and the action of the world, they were the bad guys. And I think now that has shifted. And now meat, meat is a problem. And I think rightfully, and how we see it. So, and, and I think that's going to develop like this is right now in meat. But I think in, in, in 20 or 30 years, we'll talk just about protein. And then meat is going to be one of one of them. But you'll have uh, fungi, which is really good in terms of the texture. You have indeed the plant-based meat, like Impossible and Beyond. They have a lot of traction uh, and are doing a really good job. And then you have cultivated meat, which is, I think, the most difficult route, but I think also the most rewarding route because what we don't make plants taste like meat. We actually make meat. So what we do is we take a couple sample cells from an animal. In, in our case, that's a pig or, or a cow. And... We basically try to mimic the process that the animal has inside or that the cells have in the in the body of the animal. So we basically provide it with the nice temperature, 37 or 38 degrees, oxygen, nutrients. And if you do that well, and I'm making it sound very easy, it's not easy, but I'm making it sound very easy. Yeah. If you do that well, then the, the cells feel at ease and they start dividing themselves as they do in the body. And then if you have enough cell mass, you get to a second step, which is called the differentiation process. So then you go from, in our case, a stem cell to a fat and a muscle cell, which are the most important components of meat. And then you have real, but without any of the drawbacks in terms of climate change, animal welfare, etc. So that's what we're trying to do. And that's indeed a whole palette that's part of the whole alternative protein space, which obviously next to the meat, you also have the dairy, but there you have the oatlies, but now they're also working on uh, fermentation base. So really looking, how can we make the proteins that are active proteins in milk? How can we, how can we make it? So it's a whole industry that is already getting quite large, but I think really yeah. is only in its nascency. I have so many questions, like in terms of cost, in terms of regulations, healthiness, uh all these things. But you tell me you've been in this business, obviously, for a long time. What are the main challenges you face in terms of Meetable and where you would like to see it? I think next to what we're trying at Meetable, I always say like, in the end, there's the technological challenges and there's the regulatory challenges. And I'll talk about it in a bit. But there's also the challenge of how do we make, how do we build the best execution company that we can? But, but yeah. maybe we talk about that, uh, that later. But the first one, I think it's as with any sort of new research and development, the question is always, will it scale and how will it scale and how fast will it scale? So we're now, to give you a picture, we're now making the transition to 50 liter reactors and then we move from grams to kilograms which is a very big step for us but it's still not in the end we need to have a plant of at least 20,000 kilograms a day so we still have definitely a, a ways to go there so i think that's one question right we know de-risked as they say the fundamental science mm -hmm. so we know that fundamental science works but now it's really all about scalability that will already drive a big part of the cost down uh, and then secondly there's basically the the nutrient broth that the cells, there's also some expensive components, so they also need to be replaced, so that the remaining uh, scientific challenge. Mm -hmm. And then I think you're right, eh, on, on the regulatory side, although 
I don't, I see that as a possible source of delay, but I don't think that in the end, that's going to be a risk that prevents us from going to the market. We have done a lot of studies already, toxicological studies on, on uh, the safety of our meat. And uh, what comes out of that is that uh, obviously it's safe to consume. And I think for regulators, that should be the main, uh, the main concern. And what you also see shifting now, especially in Singapore, but also here in Europe, is that they see that innovations like this can help Brussels basically make their Paris Accord climate change goals. If we really bring that message home, I assume that regulators will really work with us. And that's also what we've experienced so far, that they're really keen to work with us to get these products on the markets as soon as possible. Yeah, I know that in Singapore, you have a company that got regulatory approval. Yeah, yeah. How, how far are you from getting regulatory approval? How far before I see a meetable product in my grocery store? Yeah, those are two different questions. But so the first market entry, we're now aiming 2024. Okay. It's probably also going to be in uh, going to be in Singapore. And then there's the question, when is it in the grocery stores? I, I think probably a year or two after that, because we did the calculations and to actually get a, a, a spot in Tesco's in the UK or in Albert Heijn in the Netherlands, you need a pretty significant production amount. So probably we're aiming sort of 2025, 2026 for you to really be able to buy it in the grocery store. I want to touch upon two things that you brought up. The execution will be later, and I want that to be actually a lot more the focus of this podcast because that's something that other entrepreneurs can learn from. But on the first part, the scaling, how comparable is the cost of a meatable burger versus the normal beef burger that I get in the grocery store? Is it only people who are going to Whole Foods that can buy this or can anyone buy this when it's eventually in the grocery store? Yeah, 100%. And thanks for asking that question because it, I think it's an important one, right? And like I said, I started Meetable because I wanted to have a significant impact on some of the issues that I think we face as a species. And with that vision, it's not acceptable if you can only provide the top 0.1% of, of traditional meat or, or of our meats, because then basically you're not making the impact on climate change, on water use, on, on the ethics side of things. So yeah. that was also the first question that I asked Dan when I, or maybe not the first, well, one of the first questions I asked Dan when I spoke with him, hey, tell me what's the route to, we call it uh, meat parity and cost parity. So, because in the end, that has to be the case. Otherwise, it's not even worth trying in my book. And we have the models that actually show that's going to be the case. Obviously, the first product to the market will be of a higher price point. So then you're talking a little bit indeed like your organic type prices. But in the end, we think sort of 2027, 2028, this should be more than at price parity with conventional meat. And in the end, it will be cheaper because just the nutrient conversion, basically how many calories do you need to produce a calorie of meat? is much better in our process than it is in, in the pig or the cow. In uh, Over time, it will be cheaper than meat. In addition, I believe that if we go now to the supermarkets, we are not really getting the fair or not paying the fair price for meat. So I, I expect, especially in Europe, in the next five to 10 years, prices of meat to really go up. So I think at some point, it will also be the economic choice. I'm sure I can ask a lot more about the science and technology. It's just such a fascinating area. But let me actually turn to execution. Maybe you can tell me, where are you? What have you figured out? What are you still trying to figure out? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe taking you a little bit to our journey. So we started early 2018. Then it was 
literally a letter of intent and a business plan. That's where we that's where we started. Then we quickly met uh, Blue Yard, which is uh, I think one of the best European sort of seed seed venture capital funds. They gave us a three and a half million check, and then we basically got going. And then it was basically everybody we, we hired were molecular biologists which was super clear because the, the cells needed to work, right? That's where you start. The cells need to need to function optimally. And then 2019, 2020 was all about getting the science because the technology that we have from Mark Cotter was proven in different species, but not in pork and in beef yet. So we had to really prove the science. So that's what we did 2019, 2020, and also have a, a small research production process, which still had, had a lot of manual steps. So it was not really a food production process, but we knew, hey, we can actually make, we can make the product. And that was also what sort of kicked off the, the conversations of the big funding round that we, uh, that we closed early last year. And since then, we've put a lot of effort in really building an end-to-end consumer food company. So it really started with a bunch of molecular biologists. At some point, you got you get chemists because chemistry is super important, like in what what the cells consume in terms of the the nutrients. Engineers, obviously, there's hardware involved, so you really need to build that process. And then now we're, for example, adding a lot of analytics. If you want to go to the regulators, obviously you have to have the data on what you produce. Quality becomes important. Food safety, uh, food technology. So how do we make the best product given the process that we have? Scale up is now important. So we've recently added two people to the management team. One who has a background in cell therapies. So he brought a cell therapy product to the market, which obviously is more on the pharma side of things, but from a process perspective, very comparable. And then Hans, our COO, who has really has a sort of plant manager GM type profile. So he actually has built large-scale factories before. And that's where we are now. So we're moving from a research company to a development company. And like I said, are moving from the grams to the kilograms. And then the step after that is obviously really to get to industry scale. And I think what's very nice, maybe that's nice to tell, is we also have in the last funding round, DSM came in. DSM is a, a Dutch corporate, not very well known outside of the Netherlands because it's a B2B company, but it's, I think, one of the leaders in food tech. If you look at fermentation, uh, they have a lot of ties with the current livestock industry. So they provide feed to the current livestock industry. Uh, and they are also helping us uh, scale up the process and reduce the cost of the process. So we're working a lot together with them. So I would say focus is really getting the product even better than it is now, scaling up and, uh, and cost reduction. And with that, obviously, comes a growing organization. So we started with just Dan and myself, and we're now about 65, hoping to be growing to about 90 by mid this year. So talk to me about how funding works in biotech, deep tech, where the process is so much longer. What did you have to prove for your Series A? I know you're now going into your Series B. What are people looking for the Series B in a company like yours? So I think what we, it's really all about, or a lot is, is about the technology, obviously. Technology, there's def- defendability. I think that's also a different than SaaS, right? We mm-hmm. actually have patented technology. So we know that other people cannot use that technology without us, uh, us approving that. And I think what we really had to do in the seed stage was paint a picture on how is this technology going to drive A, a tasty product and B, do it at the, at, the, at the cost price. But at that point, it was still a vision and a dream. And there were a lot of assumptions that needed to be tested. But with Blue Yard, it was really still that dream. 
And I think with the Series A, it was having this, what I call a research production process. So we had the cell lines developed, which was a big, uh, that was sort of the, the fundamental risk that we still didn't know, hey, is the technology that we have, is that going to also work in pork cells and, and, uh, and cow cells? And it did. So that was a big one. And then really, hey, can we have a research production process that, that's going to make a small sausage? So that was Series A. And now it's all about showing consistency of data. So the first scale-up, so that scale-up to 50 liters, showing the consistency of the data. So the, how, how robust is the process? How stable is the process? And then having the, the traction on the regulatory side, on the scale-up side and on the consumer. So we've done a lot of consumer research as well on how should we position, what are the hesitations when consumers hear about this new product. So that's a couple of things that we're now uh, working on for the, for the Series B. You mentioned Singapore as potentially the place that you might launch because they, there's someone else who's got a regulatory approval. What is your general strategy for expanding all over the world? Are you planning to own factories and make meetable everywhere? Or are you planning to just be a technology company and license it to other players to manufacture? I would love to have you give some insight on how you decided which way to go and any advice for other European entrepreneurs. Yeah, so I think one is what I think was to not see ourselves as a European startup, but okay. see ourselves as a global startup. And I think, but that's just, if you are talking about a SaaS product, I think that's more difficult because yeah. you have to have a home market, you have to start somewhere. And then it makes sense that US investors and Asian investors are not the first investors that you think about. I think what we, given that meat is consumed everywhere and we just happen to be here in the Netherlands because I think it just makes a lot of sense from a talent perspective to be here. And that's the reason why we're here. But we never saw ourselves as a European company, so to say. And I think that's, again, also something that Blue Yard helped with is, uh, and also the lead investor of the Series A was a US investor. So I think that's one is maybe don't think you're of yourself as a European company, but see yourself as a global company. And then, uh, so that might be one, one piece of advice. So what we, in terms of the strategy, that's still a moving target, right? We said uh, we're going to go first to Singapore because it's fascinating. Singapore obviously doesn't have that much space to produce their own foods, but they have the lofty goal, the inspirational goal of by 2030 to produce 30% of their own food. Then they're looking at vertical farming, but also things like cultivated meat. So there's a big push there. And that's why we also see that as a, a, a good idea for the first market entry. Obviously, after that, we, we plan on going to the U.S., simply that given that the regulatory trajectory in in the EU is but we are going on all those fronts. And in terms of the business strategy, that's a good question. What we said, and that's maybe a segue into the consumer side of things, is this is a new product. And I have very high conviction, and we now also have data to back that up, that consumer acceptance will not be an issue. But still, we need to work and, and tell the story, tell the story of why it's necessary that we start producing our food this way why it's actually cleaner why it's actually safer than, than traditional meat so i think we said for that at least for the first couple of years we want to have that direct conversation with the consumer to be able to educate them in the, in, in the right way so that's why we said and there's also if you look at the process it's really a novel process so also there are mm -hmm. steps that we need to de-risk that's why we said for our business model, we do the do the whole shebang, which I think is comparable to what Impossible and Beyond have done. And once you really establish yourself in the market, then I think additional business models open up. But for now, we said at least those first two or three production facilities, we're really going to own and operate them ourselves. Makes sense uh, in terms of 
de-risking and, and really understanding what works and what doesn't work. Shifting to the consumer side, and you're talking about I'm, we're thinking of being a global company from the beginning. Talk to me a little bit more about why you think there won't be consumer resistance. For me, I see two things. One is this general trend that, you know what, let's go back to basic. Let's eat more organic. Let's eat more raw food. Let's meet, be more vegan. And then you layer that with the cultural differences from Singapore versus US and how they think about food and meat. And to me, sitting here seems like it's a really complicated problem to message in these markets. So I would love to hear, how are you going about this? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And it's also interesting. So we did some consumer research. What's important to consumers is very different. So what you see in Asia is that actually innovation in food is something that people really like. When you talk to Europeans, and obviously this is generalizing, but then climate is a big thing. That doesn't yeah. come back so much in the US. There, it's all about health. So, so you have these themes, and obviously, there yep. health is important. Every climate change comebacks everywhere, but it, it's pretty, it's pretty different. So, also the story that you tell, it's a consistent story, but you have to emphasize certain things with certain groups. But I think why I'm not concerned is because I have a lot of faith in the generations after us. The, given that the, the the meat market is so mind-bogglingly big and we will need 10 to 15 years to really build up the capacity just the production capacity to provide say 20 20 30 percent of the global meat market so we don't have to convince everybody tomorrow what i take so if you look at the also at our data there's very little resistance from people 25 and under they have grown up with technology more than any generation, they're concerned about climate change, about what their future is going to look like. So you see very little resistance and a lot of excitement about our product. And then if you think, hey, in 10, 15 years, those people who are now 25 will by then be 35 and 40, and they will have kids and they will make the decision. So I think it's also, we don't have to, yeah, basically time is on our side in terms of the, in terms of the adoption. And given that the market is so uh, large. In the beginning, we only need a small group of people who will want to try this. And on that, all the data shows that at least one third of the population uh, really sees it as a credible alternative. If, and that's always, if, if the taste is, is, is good and the texture is good. And obviously that's what we're making sure of. So in Singapore, how are you going to position yourself? How did you come up with the positioning for Singapore, for example? What we said in the beginning, we are going to focus on uh, restaurants there, right? So really having having a chef do something special with the with the product. I cannot sort of disclose everything on that, but that's okay. really going to be first the restaurants, then probably a small supermarket chain. And after that, hopefully we will be able to enter the US market, which obviously is from a size perspective, the more interesting opportunity. And how do you enter the US markets when you have established players like impossible and beyond who've created a positioning for this type of protein alternatives. What's your strategy going to be there? I think it's also one of providing a new story to consumers. And again, the market is so huge. So it's not that we have to fight with impossible or beyond meat. That's not how we see it. We also feel aligned. We, we have the same mission to a certain extent, right? So we don't feel that it's really about telling our stories and why we believe that we have a special product to offer. And we, we believe that people will like that, that product and they will, make the, they will make the decisions in the... Okay, great. What are you most proud of? 
having accomplished at Meetable so far? Yeah, it sounds cliche, but it's the it's the team and being able to to have a team. And, and I think despite Corona, because we were, when Corona started, I think we were like 10 or 15 and now we're 65. So everybody got onboarded and in Corona and it's, they're very multidisciplinary. So we have, it's not only sort of coders. No, we have molecular biologists, chemists, analytics, engineers, commercial people. So it's really the whole shebang. And, and having that be, be a culture where they're really low ego. Everybody is going for in the best interest of Meetable. Uh, everybody knows what to do. Everybody knows how they're adding value to the company and everybody feels uh, appreciated and know that they're that what building block they are in the whole in the whole operation i think that's by far the most difficult part of the company but i'm i'm very proud of where we are on that at the moment so definitely that's and that hiring and culture is again something that comes up often as the secret sauce that makes a company different and gives it a unique advantage so I would love to hear how you think about hiring. So one of the things I learned from my McKinsey time was there was one very big, very important thing was when you saw a CV, there needs, there needs to be passion in that CV. So, so people need to be passionate about something. It doesn't really matter what, but they have to, because if people are passionate about something and they can really go for something, I think that's the type of people that you want, right? Who really like achieving and take pride in doing something well. So I think that's also what we try to see. Do we see passion? And it doesn't need to be on the same thing, but if we have a, um, a fat expert, like her eyes light up, if she starts talking about uh, how fat cells function and, and what you need to feed them to get the profile, you just see the eyes lighting up. And I think that's, in the end, the most important most important thing. So really, is there passion? That's, I think, the most most important thing. And on the ego, I think it's we've been very lucky to have the first hires be really good and, and really fit and build the culture with us. And then it's, it, it almost goes naturally. So we don't have any checklists on, hey, how do we actually figure out that somebody is low ego? But you just, I think that's just the type of people that that you have with us. That's the vibe that you get when you are at the office interviewing. Yeah. Nice. Is there anything that I've missed that I should have asked you about? No, maybe there's one thing which on, on the culture, because I think one is low ego and the other one is passionate. That's very important. What I also like, and I think you almost have to have it in a company like ours, is a focus on growth. And because one is to attract the right people, but then you need to keep them excited and keep them engaged. And that's now also something that we're really putting a lot of effort on. But I really enjoy. I believe growth as an individual, as a professional, is the best feeling in the world. I think if you, that, that's why I love working as well, because it's just a source of, of professional and, and, and I think personal growth. And I believe that if we can have all of our people grow, then obviously the company grows as a result. So that's maybe sort of for us, the third pillar. So not only seeing your people as, hey, do this job, you're hired for this job, but how What's the path? What's the trajectory that they still have to uh, have to go? How can they grow professionally? How can they grow as individuals? Is something that's also close to my heart. And I think a big driver of, of success, because if you light that fire in people, then there's so much energy and then things, the engine starts, start roaring. So I think that's the third pillar that I'm proud of that we're now starting to build. Nice. Okay. So we've almost come to the end of our podcast, Quine, and I want to ask you a few rapid round questions. Yeah. And I usually start with, what's your favorite book? What book would you recommend to people that you really like or that made an impact on you? Yeah, it's so my favorite book or my favorite writer is definitely Kafka. I studied philosophy, so then, but I'm not sure if it's if it really brought me something in life. 
<laughs> it's my, I like the absurdity of, of his of his writings. So I think that's gonna be that's gonna be my my choice. The prose okay. is by Kafka. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Makes sense with the philosophy background that you would choose him. What is your favorite European city? Rome. My brother studied there and then I visited him a couple of times and that was just a fantastic time. He bought a small Vespa scooter and I think the best <laughs> memories are us sort of at night roaming through Rome on that scooter. Yeah, definitely. So much history and so much to see and yeah, do, right? Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. What about a productivity tool or productivity hack? that you have that keeps you productive? So I'm super old fashioned. I just, every Sunday evening, I sit down, I look at my agenda and on a A4 paper, I say, what's success going to be this week? And what do I really need to do? So I'm pretty low tech actually, but just really for before starting the week, just writing it down. Uh, So that's not really a tool, but that keeps me organized. And focused probably because you probably, you have so many things to do. I heard this again, and this is something I try to do too. You have so many things on your plate. And if you just have a checklist of stuff, then it's never ending. And and you wonder at the end, whether you made an impact. What I've actually found really helpful is like you said, what is it that I'm going to do? That's actually going to move the needle that no one else can also do because there's some things that you could do, but maybe someone else can do just as well. Maybe it's not worth your time to be doing that also. Yeah, um, 100%. 100%. My wife sometimes asks me, like, what, when is the weakest success? And then it can only be a maximum of two things. And that sort of really puts everything in perspective. Because, okay, those yeah. two meetings or, or this email really needs to be, and the rest is, is uh, icing on yeah. the cake. Yeah. Okay. And my last one is a favorite quote that you have. Anything that you live by or you say often to yourself or to your employees? I'm actually not sure whose it is. It could be Jordan Peterson, the psychologist, or Tom Brady, which is a, a famous American football player and, and one of my idols. But I think it, it's also about this growth mindset. And it's something like, don't compare yourself to other people, but compare yourself to who you were yesterday. And I think if you really live by that, and you just try to be the best version of yourself and don't compare you compare yourself with other people, I think that really sets you up for a fulfilling life. So I would go with that. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much, Coin, for being on my podcast today. I really enjoyed our conversation and I'm so excited to see what Beatable does in this space. You're very welcome. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building.